Welcome to episode 23 of Fish Across the Pond, a Miami Marlins UK baseball podcast. I'm your host, Peter Pratt, and joining me today, special guest from Swings and Mishes, Craig Mish. Craig, how are you? Hi, Peter. How are you? Thanks for having me. Good to speak to you. Yeah, you too. You too. We've been we've been trying to fix this up for some time, but we finally find time to speak. So I you're so you're you're just too busy for me. It's very hard. You have such a demanding schedule. It's very tough for you. Agreed. Agreed. My hopefully my boss isn't listening to this because uh, this is still <laughs> this is still work time for us in the UK too. But anyway, the show must go on, as they say. Yes. <laughs> Good man. Well, listen, Craig. Before we dive into the Marlins and uh, what we've been seeing this year, it's probably good. To summarize a little bit about your background, how long you've been following the Marlins and, and sports in the Florida area, um, and just kind of set the scene, that'd be interesting. And, you know, we can then dive into the Marlins. Sure. So uh, the Marlins were established in 1993. And at that time, I was in uh, in college. I, had, I graduated from high school, uh, North Miami High School in 1991. After realizing, Peter, that the coach asked me, the baseball coach that I had asked me to be the broadcaster and step away from the team, I knew that I had to find some future in broadcasting. It wasn't going to happen for me. So uh, so at that time, I was at the University of Florida. So while I did attend a lot of Marlins games in 1993 and 1994, primarily I was away at school. Uh, but when I graduated from the University of Florida, I immediately got into media and more of actually television media as opposed to radio. And mm -hmm. so I lived on the West Coast of Florida. Uh, any chance I would get, I would come back home to South Florida and get what we would call media credentials. And I and I have I still save my media credentials from the Marlins from all the years that I did in 95, 96, 97, 98 and beyond. And then uh, after leaving the West Coast of Florida, coming back to South Florida to work full time, I was hosting a morning radio show on a radio station, also working at the CBS affiliate in Miami and television. And then, you know, basically covering the Marlins on and off. And I would say for the last, uh, you know, 18 to 20 years, probably not full time covering the team, but always kind of in the midst, you know, going into the clubhouse, knowing who the players were, knowing who the owners, different owners were. Mm -hmm. And then over the last, I would say, five to 10 years, having more intense uh, coverage of them. But Peter, I, I'm not there every single day like like some people are. I would say I usually attend either one or two games, a series, uh, two or three games, a homestand, because lucky for me with the work that I do, I'm fortunate to be able to kind of call my own shots as to the kind of coverage that I have. And so uh, television background, Peter, radio background for sure in Miami. I worked for uh, four different radio stations in Miami, actually. So uh, it's uh, I, I'm I'm a veteran of the South Florida media industry, and I think a lot of other people know me, Peter, from fantasy sports because that's been a primary for me. I worked for SiriusXM for 10 years, hosting a fantasy baseball, fantasy football show, and now I'm working for the Fantasy Sports Network (FNTSY), where I host a show every day from 12 to 2 Eastern. So hopefully that long-winded explanation sums it all up. No, that's, that's perfect, and. Uh... Well, just a follow-up question on that side. You've obviously followed the team since inception, give or take. Um, 
favorite moments? I mean, there's a couple of obvious ones, but beyond the, the kind of World Series wins, etc. Favorite moments or highlights or games that kind of stick in your minds? I think the obvious ones are, are 2003 and 1997. I was at both of those World Series, I think so. But there are other games that I remember. One of them was, and remember, this is basically being a, a younger fan at the time, not being in the media. But I really think the first time the franchise decided that they wanted to compete after the expansion year was when they acquired Gary Sheffield. And I remember that moment being a moment where, uh, you know, I knew that Miami had a baseball team, but they really were just at the very beginning of putting it together with Benito Santiago and Charlie Huff and, and all of these players, Jeff Conine, that I, I knew were good players, but I didn't really think they were game changing type players. But when Miami went out uh, to, I believe it was San Diego and they acquired Sheffield, and I thought at that point, wow, like this is a this is one of the great players in the game. And so that was kind of a game changer for me. And then to watch them build all the way through 97 uh, and then, of course, tear it down and then get to know the young players from 1998 all the way through 2003. Uh, but but that game in particular was one of them. Uh, also, uh, Roy Halladay's uh, no hitter against the Marlins mm -hmm. was another one that that sticks in my mind's eye only because I didn't go to that game. Yeah. And, I, and I remember I remember being at dinner that night thinking to myself, wow, like I missed another chance. That's Peter. The one thing I've been to all star games. I've been to uh, several World Series and I've been to probably more games and than, than virtually anybody in South Florida. But I've never seen a no hitter completed in person. I've, I just have been I've had bad luck with that for whatever reason. So, yeah. Uh, so I don't I don't know. That's the one thing and the one game and then Sheffield's first game. And I remember going to it and thinking, uh, you know, we have a potential future Hall of Famer here in South Florida. That was really the first time. But there's been so many games I wouldn't even know, you know where to go with it. But that takes me back as far as I can, as far as that goes. Well, I guess and that maybe kind of segues us nicely into where we're at now from a franchise perspective. So interested to get your take on that because I look at the draft in particular that has just come and gone and a lot of the signing, well, all of the signings that we made. And, and for me, my view is, and from afar, this is a real turning point, I feel, for the franchise. So beyond the draft itself, what's your take on the, the position of the franchise right now, how are the, the front office guys doing? Uh, are we Should I be as excited as I am? Well, look, they still have to develop the players that they drafted. But but the one point that I would say that you, you, you're right on is that this does feel a little bit like 1993. And I would tell you that the word expansion has come out of Marlin CEO Derek Jeter's mouth now. Uh, look, there's there's a huge difference between an expansion team in 93 and when you're building something up again with a new franchise in 2019. But it does have a little bit of a feel to that, especially last year where you just had a lot of veterans and players, you know, toward, at the, toward their end of career or players that they didn't figure into the future. And one by one, players and executives are just being kind of pushed out for this whole entire new regime and new way of thinking things. So. Mm. I do. I do think that this draft class is going to be critical to the success of the Marlins being back and being relevant in two or three years, maybe two years at the earliest. Uh, DJ Svillick, who is the amateur scouting director, uh, took over the draft after the 2018 draft. So there's a big distinction there, Peter, with mm. the last year's draft and this year's draft. I just kind of thought that the new regime had everything going as soon as they took over. But 
it took some time for them to reestablish mm-hmm. who their uh, cross-checkers and new scouting directors were. And so this, to me, is the real benchmark draft as to how the Marlins will do. No indictment on 2018, although I would say at this point, it does. I'm a little skeptical as to the talent that they acquired from the 2018 mm-hmm. draft. Maybe, maybe there's a chance of some succeeding, but at least from a whole, it doesn't look fantastic. But I would say that the way that they accomplished getting a couple of high school kids in this draft and also clearly taking two very big upside hitters in Blade mm-hmm. and Meisner that I would project to see in the Marlins lineup sooner than later. Yeah. And you got to spend some time with those guys on, on Friday, I think it was, when they when they signed and were at the at Marlins Fr- Park. Or maybe Friday Saturday. and Saturday. Yeah, Friday yeah. and Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. How did they come across? Obviously, uh, we saw a bit of bat in practice, but you got to chat to them. They came across sure. well. Yeah, Blade, I think in particular is is uh, you know from from everything that I understand, and I don't know him personally like I do a lot of the other guys. I think that's for sure. But uh, he he is a he comes across as a leader. Uh, I think off the field, from what I understand, he's very nice. Uh, but on the field, he's a tough guy. That's what I've heard. So I like to hear that he's a competitor. He obviously wants to win. He wants to compete at the highest levels. And so we'll get a chance to see him in some competitive play, actually, Peter, this weekend in uh, in Jupiter. So I'm looking forward to seeing him play. Uh, Cameron Meisner, on the other hand, is a little bit of a a tougher nut to crack, so to speak. He uh, comes from a very small town uh, in Missouri uh, where, you know, baseball is very big, certainly. But the business of baseball is a little bit different. And you could see that kind of carrying itself out. Uh, I was told that the Marlins didn't actually sign Meisner until I believe it was 4.58 p.m. on Friday. So it was two minutes before the deadline. Yeah. So they took that right until the end. Uh, Meisner is, is, has a little bit of a more, more of a ways to go, I think in development than Blade does. Uh, he struggled a little bit in the sec play, so we'll just kind of have to see, but I know that they're very confident with him as well. I do think though, you'll see Blade in the big league sooner. And I think that as you see the levels being climbed, I think Mm -hmm. Blade is probably a little bit ahead of where Meisner is in terms of development. Yeah. What, what do you think, uh, why did it go so close to the deadline? I mean, it was just a financial financial thing for, for Meisner? Yeah, the the way that it was kind of explained to me is is that every negotiation is different. And that's not to say that the two agents, uh, one did a better job than the other, Scott Boris or Casey Close. Uh, I, I don't think that, that is, is indeed the case. But it, it's my understanding, at least, that, uh, that the Meisner family in particular, like this was all brand new to them and how things go. And so... Uh, and again, these are just people telling me different things, understanding that perhaps uh, Meisner's camp just let their agents virtually handle everything, not having a familiarity as to how the business works. That's no indictment on them whatsoever. That's how a lot of uh, clients ask their agents to handle it. Mm-hmm. And so without them really being involved, uh, you know, they basically put a line in the sand as to they wanted more money than what he got in slot. I don't know this to be a fact, Peter, but if my agent is telling me I'm worth this and mm-hmm. I end, and this ends up happening, I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe they wanted to deliver on that promise and make sure that he did get a little bit more money over slot, which he did get in the end about, I believe, uh, close to $20,000. So, look, I don't have the intricacies as to what really happened there, but you, you hear bits and pieces <clears throat> of stories as to what happened. I, I think that from Meisner's point of view, he didn't really miss that much, but – if he was in Gulf Coast League play, he would already be closer to playing with the Jupiter Hammerheads. So that ended up costing him a couple of weeks. But in the end, was it worth it for him to get the extra 20000 You know, maybe so as a young kid. And that ended up happening. 
Uh, we didn't get into the details there. And in the conversations I had with him, at least publicly, he basically mm. said that he trusted in his representatives and they followed their lead all across the way. And so here we are. He signed right before the deadline. But the good news is for Miami, they got both done. <clears throat> well, that's it. He, he, they got the deals done. Um, they went over, over slot, I think, for both of those guys. But I think the view, not so much on Blade, but maybe some of the other guys and maybe some of the high school guys in particular, they were – you know, they, I guess, slid in the draft a little bit because it wasn't certain they were signable, some of these guys, but the Marlins got sure. it done. What do you think it is that convinced these guys to to commit their futures to the Marlins? Uh, do you think it's a front office thing, i.e. they're able to clearly define the strategy of the franchise and where they're going and these guys bought into it? Is it as simple as that? No, I think it's the money, Peter. <laughs> I, I, I think they, I think what happens I think what happens is is Miami puts together a draft plan going in, and they have backup plans going in. And I know that for a fact with a couple of the players that they drafted, they weren't their first choice, mm. but they ended up, you know, close to being their first choice. But Peter, a lot of this is is you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, negotiations before the player is taken. And by the way, a reason why Meisner waited so long to sign is that didn't happen with Meisner. Meisner was basically a player that slipped in the draft. The Marlins saw him on the board and then took him. But a lot of these other players, they have an idea through representatives and friends and cohorts what they would end up signing for. And that indeed was the deal with uh, with Evan Fitterer, the pitcher who they drafted, and also the deal with Chris Machma. Uh, the pitcher who they ended up taking from Michigan out of high school, and he ended up signing for over half a million dollars. So, look, they, there has to be some level of comfort with Miami. I'm sure that uh, they had spoken to people with Miami, but the bottom line is is other organizations didn't think those two players were signable, and they were shocked when Miami mm-hmm. ended up taking them. But for uh, give give the Marlins credit, Gary Denbo and Mike Hill and – and DJ Svillick and, and all the other people involved who scout and cross check and get to know these families and people because they had an idea that if they could hit a certain number with these players, they could end up signing them. Uh, in the case of Fitterer, they had a, a clear idea, a clear agreement. They gave him his million or whatever it was, and it was done. But for Machma to get done, what they had to do was basically make sure that they were going to sign Meisner, get that deal done to know that they had money to sign Machma after they did uh, Meisner. So they came to the agreement with Machma, but they didn't sign him until after Meisner signed his agreement. Then they yeah. sent both into the commissioner's office and got both done, putting them just below that threshold, that tax threshold of 5%. Miami was not going over that and losing a draft pick. They could not afford to do that. A lot of their scouting and development and money, Peter, is going toward young players, uh, both uh, in the United States and internationally. Because mm. they feel as though in the market that they're in, I don't think Miami is ever going to have a John Carlos Stanton contract ever again. I, I don't think this market can support it. I don't think it'll ever happen. And so, therefore, you have to spend your money wisely, use your young players in order to cultivate the franchise. And so, if the money's going toward that, you have to save every draft pick. You have to save every dollar toward that internationally and in the draft. And that's where the uh, Marlins have focused all their their financial input so far. Makes sense, and hey, I, I think they had about two thousand dollars left to spare on the uh, on the five percent threshold. So yeah, I look, I I offered, you know, I offered, you know, you want to throw a little bit of money at me? Um, I did the know, same. Center field. I was very fast center fielder. You know, for a grand, I could definitely you know play ten fifteen games out there, catch a few balls. I may strike out a lot, but 
I think I can run a few down in center field. Well, there's probably some jokes to be made here, but I won't make them. We'll we'll move on. So, <laughs> so based on what we've seen last year, and we're halfway, just over halfway, in effect for for this year, how how's this rebuild progressing in your view? I think they're probably on schedule. I wouldn't say that they're ahead. I wouldn't say that they're behind. 2020 mm-hmm. is a critical year. I think coming up here for a couple of reasons. I think that from a fan base, and it's really interesting, Peter, that uh, a lot a lot had been percolating over the last couple of weeks about attendance again and why people aren't going to the games. And then you saw people uh, you know, on social media say, oh, you have to go to the games and you have to see the Marlins. You have and and I, I think that the effort that Miami has put in, aside from the on-field baseball aspect, has been top-notch. You give them a 10 mm-hmm. out of 10. They they did nice things in the stadium. They're trying to re-engage the fans, and that's perfectly fine. But it's going to be very hard, and the Marlins, I think, recognize that, to bring back fans that have been burned in 97 and burned in, nine, in 2003 and kind of burned by the previous regime. So a lot of their effort is bringing in new fans and new people yeah. to understand what this is about. I think that's the right direction. But inevitably, Peter, I cannot be one of those people who are going to just pound my uh, pound on the table and yell at people and say, you got to attend Marlins games. And I'll tell you the reason why the on field product in at the major league level is a critical aspect of to why you would buy a ticket to see a baseball game. And the reality is, is that they have some young pitchers and things look promising, but there's still 20 some odd games under 500. They're on pace to lose 100 games again. And until they go out and reinvest on the major league side in major league baseball free agents and are able to basically use what I would say next year, the Martin Prado money, which is about 18 million, the Starling Castro money, which is tw- which is 12 million. Peter, that's 30 million dollars that's coming off the books next year. And they already saved some money last year, too, with expiring free agents and such. If they decide to reinvest that money in the major league side, I, I, I'll be the same one pounding on the table. Hey, look, here the Marlins go. They're raising their payroll. They got these these guys coming off the books. They've put that back in. But what did they do this past offseason? They signed Curtis Granderson. They saw Neil Walker, Pedro Alvarez they brought in during spring training, Sergio Romo. And that's just not enough, I think, to to sell the fan on look at this money that we're investing on the major league side. When that happens, and I think it will in the offseason, mm-hmm. I think the Marlins will have a better claim to bringing those fans back and demanding some respect at that point to say, hey, we're spending money like every other franchise in Major League Baseball. So yeah. I would say next year is a critical year for that. I don't think they need to win 85 games, Peter. I'm not saying that. But mm-hmm. I don't think that anybody in this city is going to be able to endure three years of close to 100 losses. This is not like being in a historical place like Detroit where you have season ticket holders forever. This is not yeah. like being in Kansas City where they just won two World Series or went or they won a World Series and went to another. This is not like being in Baltimore. Where we're talking about names like Brooks Robinson, Eddie Murray and Jim Palmer. We don't we don't have that here. We don't have generations of fans that have been going for the last 50 to 100 years. Next year is a watershed mark for the team. They're going to have to be better. They're going to have to spend some free agent money. And then at that point, we'll really see if fans are willing to re-engage the franchise. Because unfortunately for them this year, even with the changes that they made from afar, people are watching on TV, people are listening on the radio, but they're just not attending the games. Well, and is there is there an early mish bomb 
to be thrown out there now of uh, of, of of who one of those free agent signs could be? It, it's hard. It's really hard to say because the free. <laughs> I, I look. I'd give it to you if I knew. But uh, look, there. I I, th- I throw out the the name Francisco Lindor a lot because I just think mm-hmm. that he would be a great player to add to the franchise if you want to make a sort of face of the franchise. But realistically. Miami would have no chance of signing him in free agency. He'll be a $300 million player. That would require Miami to trade for him in this offseason if they were to choose to do that. I don't know that they will, but trade for him this offseason and then extend him for, let's say, uh, Peter, $200 million, You know, to save yourself $100 million. I don't know if even Lindor would entertain that, but there's no chance of them getting him in free agency. And then you know what they're? I think they're going to do is they're going to look for some sort of left-handed bat either as a free agent or I believe as uh, in a trade. And yeah. so that's the direction they're going to need to go. David Peralta is a name that I've thrown out there. He can play both corner outfield positions and even center field. He's a left-handed hitter. He still has another year under his contract. I think Arizona's kind of looking to go mm-hmm. the other way. I don't feel like they're they're really in it, so that would be someone. And, uh, you know, Jose Abreu, Edwin Encarnacion, but that would create a problem for Cooper, who's playing very well at first base. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure there. Uh, shortstop is a position they're going to have to upgrade in the offseason. Uh, Miggy Rojas is a very good player, but he needs to be more of the four-day-a-week player, I think, as opposed to playing every day. Or even maybe put him at third base every day and put Anderson at right field. That's fine. They need to add some more depth in the infield. Gregorius will be a name that they'll bring up. He's left-handed. I don't know what kind of contract he would demand. So right now, Peter, we're still way too early in that process to determine the free agents. But as soon as I know, I'll tell you. Good man. Well, one thing we're not too early to start talking about is the trade deadline being that we're what? Two weeks away. Um, give or take. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, how do you see that playing out? I mean, the reality is, as I see it, there's a few guys, I think the Marlins, would have liked to have moved on and they may have not had the seasons thus far that will will get them back what they were expecting or hoping. So how do you see it going? I think that you hit it on the head. That's it. Look right now in the national league, Peter, there's only one team that's out of it completely. And it's the Mar and it's the Marlins and everybody else knows that too. And they haven't made a trade. What does that tell you? They're not really getting any, significant hits on any of the players that they have. That's going to be probably chalked up to being counted as a failure of going out and, and signing the limited free agents that they have Romo Walker Granderson all on one year deals. You would have assumed that there would be a chance that going into the 31st, that these guys would get a ton of run and, and potential to be trade uh, trade bait. But I'm just not hearing that that is indeed the case right now. So We'll have to see. Uh, I I will guess, Peter, that Romo, who I know has been getting definitive trade interest, and that's yeah. this is factual. I, I would think that, for example, uh, the team that I'm hearing is the is the Rays again. I would think that the Rays would would kick the tires on him. Uh, Tampa Bay has a, a hard throwing righty out of the bullpen. Uh, in uh, Pagan, they have Alvarado. They really don't have that kind of change of Chaz Rowe. They really don't have that change of pace guy. Ironically, I think that there's a chance that Romo could end up back uh, with the Rays. I don't think the Rays will be willing to give up much, though, so I don't no. know. Yeah, I mean, Shane Green is out there on on the uh, potential trade mark. There's a lot of other closers, Iglesias maybe even for the Reds. So mm-hmm. Miami will trade Romo. And then Walker, I suppose, will will be traded, but probably not for much. I think Granderson ends up here for the whole year. I don't see any trade uh, you know, coming down the pipeline for him. 
And then obviously the, what Miami really has to hope for is what we've been seeing, which is Starling Castro continue to do what he's doing. But Peter, you got to be realistic here. He's making, he's owed about $6 million for two months. There isn't a team that is going to take him for free and pay no. that $6 million. It is not happening. Miami's going to have to be on the hook for the majority of that. Mm-hmm. My estimation would be if Miami can save Peter 500 grand, a million, if they can say, if they can just go to a team and say, hey, look, uh, we'll, we'll just pay him a million dollars and we'll pay the rest. I think Miami has to just take that deal and then they can call up Isan Diaz to play second base. And I think that's the, that's the goal for them in August. It's, it's become a little bit more possible recently based on uh, Stalin's last what month or so. He's actually started to hit a bit, but yeah, know, I don't, I just don't, I just don't see it as, as no. being realistic. And by the way, I think Starling Castro, I mean, this is going to sound crazy. I think he's the best player on the team. I, I thought he should have been an all-star going into the season. He's got four all-stars under his belt. He's a very good player, but look, we, we don't know what really goes on behind the scenes full time, mm-hmm. but April, May and June, Let's just call it what it was. It was a disaster for him. It did not go well. Now, all of a sudden, it's picked up. Is that enough over the next 10 days to trade him and and get some team to do it? I think it it can happen, but Mm -hmm. Miami is going to have to just eat that money. That's just basically – that's the only way because, honestly, Peter, regardless of what Castro does, I think going into free agency next year – Forget about him making $12 million. They're going to buy him out with that one – he's got a $1 million buyout too on top of his contract – uh, Peter, I don't think anybody would give him six million dollars next year, five million dollars. I mean, maybe he'd get a one year, three million. Somebody would take a chance there on him. I, I could definitely see that on a on a competitive team. But, uh, you know, he was really overpaid there by the Yankees. And so uh, Miami kind of had to bite the bullet on that one. Yeah, no, that's the way it goes. Um, just just a couple of other final bits before we wrap up. Who's. Castro hasn't impressed you this year, although you think he's the best player on the team or should be. I, do. But- I like him. Who's who's actually impressed you the most of this young group? Because it is a young group in the main, um, whether that's on or off the field. Yeah. Um, look, uh, from a hitting perspective, uh, Cooper to me is. You know, I saw, I saw, kind of saw this coming a little bit. I didn't anticipate him getting hurt as much as he has, but I, I watched him in the spring. I've talked to people who told me that the way the ball jumps off his bat is different than others. That's a key thing when you hear that. And he really offensively looks like the kind of guy, even in that park, that if he played 150 games, which at this point, fair or not, has to be questioned. But if he played 150 games, he could hit 20 to 30 home runs in Marlins Park. I could see that happening. And yeah. that's a, and, and defensively have to work on some things. He's had some trouble throwing a second all of a sudden recently on double plays. But I could see him being a a piece of the team. I can't really see that offensively. If you said, give me the 2020 uh, lineup of made up of players on the team right now, it's hard to do. I mean, mm-hmm. you got Brian Anderson, you got Garrett Cooper, you got Jorge Alfaro, and I'll put Miguel Rojas in that conversation too because I do think he's earned that. But mm-hmm. that's it. I mean, that's I mean, there's a lot of offensive players that they need help with, and Cooper is now in that conversation too. So uh, that certainly is good. And then from a pitching perspective, uh, look, Caleb Smith, I still think is their best pitcher. He obviously missed a lot more time than anybody anticipated, including the Marlins. Mm-hmm. Don Mattingly said he'll be out for, oh, yeah, a start or two. It ended up being a month. Yeah. So uh, him and Sandy Alcantara, who I think is still growing, uh, Smith and Alcantara, I know for a fact, are the two pitchers the Marlins really covet. 
And you know, people talk about trading guys. I don't see those two going anywhere. I see next season Caleb Smith opening up the season on opening day as the Marlins' number one starter. And I see Sandy Alcantara being their number two. Beyond that, I think it's all flexible. But those are the two pitchers, I think, that um, that we can certainly see in the future. I'd love to throw uh, Pablo Lopez in that conversation, but this is two years in a row of a pretty significant injury. Yeah. It's unfortunate for Pablo because he, he's the guy who I've been excited about most, I'd say. I, I think he's so smooth on the mound. He's he's real fun to watch as well. So yeah, but this is, this is two years in a row with a very similar injury and durability. Right is going to have to be a question. You're building a young team, Peter, even in 2020. The other thing that you got to factor in is that the worst money you can ever spend in baseball, this is being proven year in and year out, is in the bullpen. you got to just piece that bullpen together. It's the only way to do it, and Miami has no bullpen going no. into next year, almost none. So you're going to need some length out of your starters, and even though they may have seven or eight starters that are ready for the big leagues next year, if Pablo – you know, can't stay healthy. Unfortunately for him, the nicest guy maybe in the history of baseball, sad to say, maybe he is determined to be a bullpen uh, arm for them at some point. I know it's not what anybody wants to hear, but this is two years in a row of missing a month plus. Yeah, not ideal. We hope, I've seen he's been, I think he was throwing a bullpen session maybe yesterday, the day before. So hope to see him back this year. Well, interesting, well. interesting to see how uh, how it goes with Urania too. That was maybe another one we were hoping to maybe move on. Yeah, he's not even life. he's not even throwing. I mean, uh, Miami. I, I think what Miami does with him, Peter, is is similar what they did with Straley, which was really not right. But what I think they'll do is they'll hold Urania maybe even through the winter. They'll go into spring training with him, and then you know hope some other team has an injury of some kind, and then trade him mm-hmm. off right before the season starts. Uh, because it's going to be so hard to move him at this point, coming off an injury where, I mean, I don't even know that he'll be back in August at this point, so we'll see. No, it's probably unlikely he gets moved on to Atlanta as well, right? <laughs> no, no chance of that. <laughs> I don't see that happening. Good. Well, listen, Craig, there's so much probably, uh, there's so much else we could probably get stuck into, but mindful of time. So uh, let's let's wrap it up there. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to join me today. Um, for those who don't follow you on Twitter, where where can everyone find you? At Craig Mish, that's the easiest way. That's that's uh, that's my social media handle. It's what I use. I always tell people the same thing. I don't have Facebook, and I do not have Instagram or Snapchat or any of those other things. The only place, the only thing that I have is uh, is a Twitter handle at Craig Mish. And so, I always answer as much as I possibly can if I have the answers. And sometimes if I don't, I'll ask for those answers. So I try to do that. But uh, Peter, love your work. Thank you so much for having me here. Really appreciate it. And uh, and all of your friends and my friends in the UK, there's no doubt that, look, the Marlins being good is in my vested interest, too. OK, I built I'm building something based around the Marlins uh, from a media perspective. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I want to see 100, 100 losses every single year. But even whether it's in the U.S. or the U.K., I think we all have a vested interest in hoping that there is a corner being turned soon which would make it a lot better for all of us who cover the team. That's for sure. Agreed. Craig, thanks so much again. We'll hope to catch up with you again later in the year. We'll see how things play out in August and and into September, hopefully. But until then, thank you again. And uh, thanks to our listeners. And we'll be back soon. 